good for us to spend time thinking of the incarnation and spending a few weeks in this Advent spirit, again, which is a season actually of fasting within the church calendar. Uh, Christmas, the 12 days, if you will, Christmas are the days of feasting, but, but Advent is a time of fasting. It's a time of contemplation. It's a time of longing, um, of crying out for the coming of Messiah. And as we've said, to stand with our Old Testament mothers and fathers in the faith and look forward to the incarnation. But really doing that is doing it in order to set the trajectory of our hearts. It's to set the habits of our hearts so that we remember to long for his second coming, lest we be like those in the days of Noah, as Jesus says, who were you know, making merry and working and so forth, and then the rain started to fall and it was too late. And Jesus like throws that out there for us to contemplate is don't be that, you know, don't, don't be like those. Train your heart to long, train your heart to look, um, as, as Mark said, if you will, to the, to the east for the day spring from on high. And so we take this up, and during uh, the season of Advent, we, we choose texts, sometimes following the, the lectionary, and other times uh, choosing our own path, but nonetheless taking up the theme of longing for the coming of Christ. So we've spent three weeks on a few of the servant songs in Isaiah, and now today shifting over into the New Testament right here at the immediate, uh, uh, immediately preceding uh, the birth of our Lord. And so we take up the story of Joseph here in Matthew chapter 1, and our text is uh, that which was read by Mark in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now this text starts for us, and I, I maybe I shouldn't, maybe I wussed out, you know, um, because I, and I, it's funny because as we walked, I almost turned to Mark because I know Mark would do it. I knew Mark would do it. I was going to say to him, hey, feel free to read the whole chapter. I know you would have done it. And I know, I know, you're disappointed now. I know, I can see it. In because Mark, Mark takes a certain delight in working through those genealogies, you know. And um, I should have I done it. I, I will step. Um, so that, that, the text begins with genealogy. And we'll reference that. It's, it's not insignificant. Of course, it's in the Bible. Um, but the text that we're immediately looking at in, in verse 18 starts with trouble, you know. Uh, you know, Joseph's got a problem on his hands. Um, and he's trying to figure out how to deal with it. Granted, he's looking at this through human eyes, but it's a, it's a real problem that he's got. His, his fiancée here is pregnant, you know. And she has told him not to worry. It's the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, I just... you. We can read these things like biblical, you know, mythology if we're not careful. I mean, you just got to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I always think of Mary's parents as well, you know. Dad, don't, you know, it was the Holy Spirit. But, you know, it's, it's, these are, these, you know, at some point, Joseph has a real problem to deal with. And his solution is to, to put Mary away, you know, basically to divorce her, to separate from her. Um, and, and not have her have to deal with the, the shame of this. Now, I don't know how that exactly avoids the shame per se, but, um, but it avoids some of the shame for Joseph. That, that I do know. Um, now, he says he's doing it for her, but, um, but Joseph's got a problem on his hands here, and his solution is to put Mary away. And, of course, Joseph is looking at this strictly uh, through human eyes, which, again, we can understand. We can understand. We have human eyes, you know. This, this stuff, I, I often wonder if, if the things that happened in the Bible, you know, if, if a man came around and started telling us he was God, you know, whether or not we would just immediately, you know, drop what we're doing and, and go follow him, 
you know? I mean, I think we can put ourselves in the shoes of the people for whom it was reality, not story, and uh, we can understand some of the challenges of these things. And Joseph, no doubt, uh, is in the midst of, of, of real consternation here. And so he's deciding her, to, to deciding here to put her away secretly as we get in verse 19, and then an angel appears. And we're in a moment where angels are appearing all over the place. They're appearing to Mary. They're appearing to Zechariah. They're appearing, you know, it, the, the activity is bubbling. Uh, the presence of God is bubbling uh, up at this time. Remember, after, you know, 500 years of silence, you know, the Lord has said, I'm done with you. <laughs> I'm putting you, I'm putting you away. Uh, literally, he said that to them. Remember, we've looked at some of those texts. I'm, I'm, remember last week, where's your certificate of divorce? You've left me, but that's it. It's a divorce nonetheless. And off to Babylon you go. And Israel has been put away. And she's out in exile. And the Lord has been silent. Though he left her promises that he would set all things right. And now here we are. Imagine after 490 years, uh, it's just this angelic activity and this work in Mary. So again, we can understand Joseph not having his feet under him and not being prepared for this. But the angel appears and tells him that this child is in fact of the Holy Spirit. And then gives him in verse 23, that verse from Isaiah 7 that we read today, um, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, now again, we don't get a lot of details here as to what happened with Joseph at this point. But, but you just wonder if the, 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 like there was this reckoning as Joseph is, is having to deal with the fact that Mary told him this is of the Holy Spirit, and then this text coming back to him, which perhaps he had totally forgotten. It had kind of fell off the radar of his mind, and now the angel just drops this text in front of him, and you just wonder if like all the puzzle pieces just start clicking into place. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's like the Apostle Paul when, when, uh, when the Lord appears to him and, and converts him and says, why are you persecuting me? And all of a sudden, in three days of blindness, the puzzle pieces start clicking in for him, just things that he couldn't resolve before now start making sense. Is that what happened for Joseph? We have no idea. But what we are told is that Mary, this virgin, is in fact pregnant with a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's that beautiful line that we say in the creed every week. We will say again today, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So I want us to think about that. I want our entry point to be the virgin uh, conception um, for a second. And then I want us to, from there, branch out and just consider these two names because we're given two names in this text. We're given the name of Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus. And then we're told about the, the prophecy, the, this virgin will conceive, and his name will be called Emmanuel. And so in, in this text, we actually have two names uh, given to him, Yeshua and Emmanuel. So let's think first about the virgin birth. Um, Jesus is born of a virgin, conceived in the womb of a virgin. Why? Now, we won't turn this sermon into a, into a theology lecture, but all kinds of reasons are speculated as to why the Lord would bring Jesus through a, through a virgin. Perhaps it is because 
uh, you know, you know, some go right to the issue of original sin, that this is the way that God kept Jesus from having original sin. I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but here's what I do know. The virgin birth demonstrates the fact that Messiah and the gift of salvation is purely of God. Now, if we go back into the Old Testament, God was in the habit of bringing children of promise through, you know, unexpected women, right? I mean, the, the story of the patriarchs right at the beginning gives us a picture of this. It's, it's not that the Lord is a bad chooser of women to, to give birth to because, you know, Abraham's wife is barren and then Isaac's wife is barren and then, and then uh, uh, um, Jacob's wife, you know, the, the wife he loved, Rachel, was barren. I mean, we get three stories in a row here of this patriarchal line, the line. God makes amazing promises in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's like amazing. And then she can't get pregnant. It's like that we have this amazing promise. Your seed is going to bless the world. We can't do it. We can't. We, we actually can't get the thing done that's going to initiate this amazing promise. It just can't happen. And then the Lord gifts it to them. And then Isaac, you know, marries Rebecca, and, and same thing, just this frustration, like, we can't do it. And then Jacob. And the Lord just drills home this point, I think. You know, now, again, it's not so obvious. If you're living in the moment, you're just dealing with the frustration of it. But we get to stand back with some distance and see what the Lord is doing. And in it, we, we discover the Lord is saying, yes, Abram, I'm going to do this for you, but you're not going to be like the Tower of Babel. You're not going to be like these who are saying, we, you know, we will do it for ourselves. No, I will make your name great. I will do these things for you. Right? This is going to be gift from me. And the barren wives, I think, lay the groundwork for this, like to drill it home. Are you getting the point? But even, even a barren woman can eventually, possibly. I mean, we've, you, I'm sure you've known many people who for a long period of time were unable to have children. I have multiple friends like this who for a long period of time were unable to have children. They were just convinced that's it. We can't do it. And I'll tell you, almost nine times out of ten, they adopt, and after the adoption, boom, get pregnant. I, how many times that has happened? I mean, it's unbelievable, right? There, there's just something where once the body just concedes um, and then relaxes, it's, it's like, I don't know, it, you, you see that happening. Or it's a gift from God, and I'm trying to, explain, <laughs> trying to explain it psychologically. I don't know. It could just be a gift from God. It is a gift from God. But nonetheless, barren women can... Have, reach a point and have children. But virgins don't have children. Okay? Virgins don't have children. You know, barren wives may have children in time, but virgins don't. And that pattern that was laid out for us in the, in the matriarchs, you know, is now taken to the fullest uh, demonstration here in the virgin birth of our Lord. That this here now, Joseph, and through Joseph, all of us who will read it, let it be known. This gift that's about to be given to you is purely and squarely from God himself. This child in the womb of Mary was my gift to you. Now, even in that, however, and I find this fascinating, it, rem it reminds me when we were talking through the attributes of God, one of the attributes of God that I think um, 
it almost feels weird to call it an attribute of God, is that of humility. The humility of God. That even in this case, he uses, and uses I'm saying, not in a, I'm, I'm saying uses not in a disrespectful way, but he, he involves, let's use that word, he involves Mary. This is pure gift, sovereign gift. He comes to Mary, he initiates, he is going to conceive in her womb, and yet nonetheless, he involves the creature in this. He involves Mary. And Mary, you'll remember, we're not in that text today, but Mary actually says, let it be unto me as you said. Mary participates. Mary contributes in that sense. It is Mary's womb, after all, that the Lord conceives in. Now, I tell you, I don't think he had to do that. Who am I to tell God how he had to incarnate himself? But nonetheless, he involves the creature here. Right? And, and right, so right from the beginning, even, even in this moment of the, of the incarnation, God condescends to involve a creature. I mean, Mary is mentioned in our creed. You know, the, the creature is elevated to that place where she is mentioned in the creed regarding the very salvation of humanity. So we see on the one hand this amazing sovereignty and this amazing condescension in the virgin conception and virgin birth of Jesus. And in then the virgin birth, this brings us then to the two names because something amazing is happening in the womb of Mary. Right? We have a child who is truly human, bearing the DNA of Mary. Right? This is Mary's son. And at the same time, in a way unique, he is truly the son of God. Now don't forget, the, the, the title Son of God was a title that was used of Israel in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4, you go tell Pharaoh, you let my son go, my firstborn son. Israel is the Son of God. And the kings were called Son of God. And Jesus is Messiah, therefore he will be Son of God. But he's the Son of God in a unique way. He is literally conceived by God in the womb of Mary. And yet he is truly human bearing the DNA of Mary. He's born and conceived in the womb of Mary. Which brings us to these two names. So the first, we're told in verse 21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Just a good human earthly name, Yeshua, right? We're getting it in the Aramaic here, but essentially it's Joshua. He will, and why is he called this? Because this is what he's going to do. Now, again, we could, we, he, it's almost like any biblical name we could have given him because he, I mean, he is the second Adam. You know, he is our greater Noah who gives us rest. He is the greater Abraham, you know, who's, who's, who will bring blessing to all the nations. He's the greater Israel. He's the greater Moses who leads his people out of slavery and onto the promised land. But he's clearly the greater Joshua. And what he has come here to do now is to do that, to bring the conquest the greater conquest of the greater land, you know, that Joshua ultimately could not do. He is our deliverer. 
And he's going to deliver people not just from the Canaanites, not just from the Egyptians. The Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Amalekites, they're like, again, they're like little game board pieces. They, they, were, the, they were the model. They, 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 they were the, 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 the type. But, but the Amalekites and the Egyptians and the Canaanites, these enemies and this little Joshua who's doing this in the Old Testament is there again to train us to look for a greater deliverance. What you see in the lesser with Joshua marching in and clearing out this land is what Jesus is going to do. The greater Joshua is going to do, not just in Canaan, not just in Israel, but for the world. He's the greater Joshua who brings deliverance and salvation to the world. He brings deliverance from a greater slavery. We're told in verse 21, and he will bring, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, again, not from the Canaanites, but he will save his people from the enemy that really plagues us, the enemy that at the end of the day has to be dealt with. And it's the enemy of sin. The sin, and even in the story, even in the story of Egypt and the wilderness and the promised land. The problem underneath the problems was sin. Why is there a generation dead out there in the wilderness that can't come in? Sin. Why when we come into the land and finally do what we've been waiting to do, what God promised to our fathers, why doesn't it go as well as we thought it was going to go? Sin. Right from the beginning, you've got Achan taking idols and hiding them underneath his tent. You know, I mean, right from the beginning, we're off to a bad start. You don't fully purge the land like God called them to do, and here we go. And it enters us from Joshua into the book of Judges, where we have, you know, the people spiraling into idolatry, the Lord sending an enemy to overcome them, them crying out for deliverance, God giving deliverance, them rejoicing in that deliverance, and then getting content in that deliverance and spiraling down into idolatry and on and on and on we go until we want a king and we ask for Saul. I mean, it's a mess. Sin. The land itself wasn't the thing. The Canaanites weren't the real enemy. It turns out. That, as Sholzhenitsyn said, you know, the line between good and evil is a line that runs through every human heart. It's, it's, not, it's not as simple as, oh, the Canaanites and the Israelites. The Israelites got into the land and they brought the Canaanite problems right with them. They just adopted and absorbed the Canaanite problems. It's, it's kind of what we do. Ultimately, we're going to need a greater Joshua. We're going to need a Joshua who's going to come and deal with that problem. Who can bring a conquest down at that level. And the word is... This one will come, Jesus. He will come and bring deliverance for us from that problem, from our sins. So his name will be Jesus. Again, a very human name, right? He's the son of Mary, the son of man. And yet, and yet, of course, when the text is pulled out from Isaiah 7, we see the, the greater name, if we can call it that. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And I'm not, I'm not even sure, to be honest, that, that Joseph knew what that meant. I mean, there are people called Emmanuel, and you, you know, Abraham was called something. It has Ab and you know, God, and you know, you know, uh, so so the a father, and and you know, you had all kinds of names that have references to God in them. 
did did Joseph even know what was meant by this name? But we know. We have the we have the perspective to know. Yeah, it wasn't just a name referencing the fact that God is with us. He actually was God with us and is God with us. And so let's just think for a second about this name. A virgin will conceive and his name will be Emmanuel Yahweh with us. The story of Jesus, of course, is the story of a deliverer, but more than that, it is the story of Almighty God condescending to dwell with us. You'll remember Moses when they were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land, when they get to Mount Sinai, the Lord judges them for the, the, the uh, golden calf. And Moses begs, he intercedes that God would not destroy them. And the Lord says, okay, I won't. Moses, you've convinced me. Because of my love for you, I will not do this. But I'm not going with you. I will give you the land, but I'm not going with you. And you'll remember Moses' response. I'm very humbled by this response because I, I remember John Piper once throwing out the idea, if you could have all the goodies of heaven, but God weren't there, would you still want it? You know, no cancer, no death, no this, no that. It's a very humbling question to ask. It, it kind of reveals your idols very quickly. And God, and so here he tells Moses, I'll give you the land, the thing you guys have been wanting. I'll give it to you. Don't worry about it. But I'm not going to be with you. No Emmanuel. And Moses says, you know what then? Okay, I undo everything I said. Kill us right here. <laughs> Kill us right here. If you're not going with us, we don't want the land. Incredible. Incredible. And here, the fulfillment of that promise is given. Literally, God has come to tabernacle to dwell with us. Now, the way God ended up dwelling with them was in a tabernacle. They built a tent, and Israel was traveling in tents, so God travels in a tent. And then in time, when they all build houses, eventually, God will say, okay, now it's time to build me a house. I will dwell with you. And here, but all of those houses and tents were pointing forward to the ultimate Emmanuel, when God would come in our tent, as Paul calls this body and tabernacle with us, come in our house as man, with man. But make no mistake about it, that one, Yeshua, is God himself. And he's God dwelling with us. And who's the us? Here's where I should have had Mark read the, <laughs> read the genealogy because it brings us back. One, it's us as human beings. His name is Jesus. He's really genuinely human. He was conceived in the womb of Mary, and he has Mary's DNA. He's with us. So the us is humanity. But even more than that, it's sinful humanity. I mean, just go back and read the list of names, which I have no doubt Mark would have done beautifully. They're a bunch of losers. It's a, it's a list of losers. Now, there's some big names in there, don't get me wrong. Compared to me, many of them are pretty great. But you know their stories. It's a list of failures. And fascinating, too, that he's got some women in here who don't have the best track record themselves. Now, Luke's version, you don't get this. But in Matthew's version, 
this is in there. I mean, you have Tamar in there, okay, who sleeps with her father-in-law. You have Rahab in there, a prostitute. You've got uh, Bathsheba in there. In fact, David, he doesn't mention David, the king who begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I mean, it's amazing in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew includes these kinds of names. Like, there's no shame. He was, you know, I, I go to what uh, the author of Hebrews says. He was not ashamed to call us brethren. Us. God with us. Don't forget, this list is not a list to be mocked because we're in that list. You know, like this is, these are, these are us. This is the us that God came to be with. He came to be with losers. It's interesting that Matthew is writing this. Don't forget, Matthew was a loser. Matthew was a tax collector who Jesus chose. Jesus comes to Matthew and says, I want you on my team. I choose you. Israel was a group of losers. Deuteronomy 6, don't think I chose you because you were greater in number or better than the other nations, for you were the least of all. The least. And this is a theme you can just run through. Again, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He says, but Jacob's the younger. David's chosen to be king. He's the youngest of all the brothers. I mean, there's a, there's a pattern here that the Lord is driving home. He loves to be with the losers because we're all losers. We're all sinners. That's what's shocking about Christmas. That's what's shocking about the incarnation. Yeah, the virgin birth is an amazing miracle. I get it. But his name is God with us, with sinners. As I prayed in, uh, I think it was in the pastoral prayer, maybe it was the prayer of Thanksgiving, I can't remember, but again, that Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's like, yeah, why would you, why would God do this for creatures that he made from the dust? With a snap of his fingers, they're gone, we start fresh. <laughs> this is no effort for God. But God in his sovereign wisdom and sovereign love chose to love the dust of the earth that he made. But it's even more shocking that because the dust of the earth gave God the middle finger. Like we spit on him. And when he incarnated himself, we crucified him. So the, 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 the dust of the earth that he made is not just dust, it's rebellious dust. It's arrogant dust. It's dust, it's treasonous dust. And yet, Jesus is God with you. Us of all people, <laughs> with us of all things. He was not ashamed to call us brethren so that he might redeem us and turn us of all people into a kingdom of priests to his God. <laughs> I mean, we sit here this morning praising God. What an amazing thing. Pure gift. And it's a gift that comes to us because of Jesus, our Emmanuel, who was with us, not just in principle, but actually bore our flesh, walked our streets, lived with us, died our death 
I mean, Emmanuel to the bones, right? Emmanuel to the core. So that as Emmanuel, he might also be our Yeshua, our deliverer, that we through him might be reconciled. You know, that beautiful line in heart that our old angels sing, you know, God and sinner, fire and gasoline, reconciled. How can it be? How can it be? But it is in the gift of Emmanuel, our Yeshua. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of Emmanuel. Lord, that you would send your only begotten Son to bear our flesh, to be with us, this group of sinful, rebellious losers is too kind of a word, but that you would love us and that you would redeem us, that you would not be ashamed to call prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners your brothers and sisters but to make them your bride, Father, through your Son is, a, is an amazing and humbling thing. And so on this last week of Advent, Father, where we anticipate now so clearly the, nearly the celebration of the Incarnation, we rejoice and we give you praise. Keep us faithful, we pray. Keep us thankful, we pray, as we look forward to his second coming. For we ask this in Christ's name.